Now, on Sunday mornings, we're studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and today we come to the heart of the letter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I think this is one of the, 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 the densest and deepest and in some ways most complicated parts of Ephesians, indeed the Bible to grasp, but it is also one of the most uh, wonderful passages in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Now, chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians teach us who we are as Christians, teach us who we are as local churches, and teach us who we are as the church in the world. And uh, it is marvelous stuff. Paul holds back in his desire, I guess, to get to chapter 4 with all the practical stuff about how we're to live. First, he wants the church in Ephesus, he wants the Christians in Ephesus to understand who they are in Christ. Now, in chapter 3, uh, Paul is overcome in his own soul as he explains these marvelous things. Uh, he writes um, one sentence. Every sentence of Paul's in Ephesians is about half a page long. But Paul has a big concern as a pastor, as a writer. 
And his big concern for his original readers, the church in Ephesus and the other churches that would have read this letter, and his big concern where he here this morning is this, that we will not be affected by this stuff. Paul, all through his writings in the New Testament, is concerned that we might know this stuff, but that we're not affected by it. Now, Paul is the first of the apostles to say that our minds need to be engaged. But Paul also has a lot to say that the gospel needs not only to engage our minds, but to engage our souls, our deepest emotions, and the very core of our being. It is what people used to call uh, the affections. It means, as Christians, when we reflect on the truth about who we are in Christ, when we gather together as a church community or church communities this morning to study God's Word, it means there is something very wrong. If your mind is not here now, and just as importantly, there is something wrong if our hearts don't burn within us at these truths. And Paul is concerned about this because it is a real spiritual battle going on in our souls as sin still lurks within our bodies to not let our hearts be engaged, not be affected by these truths. See, Paul knows that it makes all the difference in the world when a Christian or a church feels the seriousness of sin. Paul knows it makes all the difference in a world when a Christian or a church just has moments when across their minds and across their hearts, the sheer mercy of grace of God in the gospel steals upon them. Paul knows it makes all the difference in the world when you and I realize that without Christ and without God, we were dead, dead in our sins. Now, what Paul is getting at is that we love with the affection of Christ, our Lord, and our fellow believers. He wants us to feel the joy of others within our church communities and their pain. He wants us to love the church. He wants us to be deeply affected when we hear news of the advance of the gospel in some other country in the world. And I may be alone, but I probably am not. Until we are with the Lord Jesus in the new creation, it will be a battle not only in our minds to understand, but in our hearts that they burn within us. It is a dangerous thing, you see, and it's spiritually opposed when a Christian's heart burns with affections for Jesus. It is a dangerous thing when a church, its heart burns with affection for Jesus. There is a world of a difference between knowing the gospel in your head and letting it deeply affect your soul. And that is why Paul, twice in Ephesians, stops teaching theology and gets to his knees and prays 
that we will grasp this in our minds, our souls, our bodies, our hearts. And so we're going to pray now using one of these prayers, and let's humbly ask the Lord for help. Our Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just imagine if that prayer were to be answered in the next 25 minutes. Gosh, that we would grasp the height, the length, the depth of the wisdom and the glory of Christ in the gospel with all the saints who have ever lived through history, and that we be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, on the inside of uh, the service sheet, you'll see some simple headings to try to help us understand what Paul is saying. I could do with a good hour this morning, but uh, I've not got an hour. You'll be glad to know. It's complicated, but uh, we need God's help to help us grasp these things. So, three things to say, I think. The mystery of the gospel revealed, the message proclaimed, and suffering and glory. Now, 20 minutes of our time on number one, and just a little bit on two and three. Um, Now, before we plunge in, just notice, if you look at the text in your Bibles, what is going on. So, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, And then look forward to chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. It's as if Paul is about to tell them what he's praying for them. It's almost as if Paul is saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father. And just before he gets to the bow my knees before the Father, he stops in mid-sentence, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we get verses 2 to 13. But this is no footnote, nor no parenthesis. It is a wonderful summary of all that Paul has said to this point in the letter. It's almost as if God's inspiration that works itself down through the years, I mean, we're 2,000 years down the track as we study this letter, it's almost as if uh, the preacher is ready at this point to say uh, Paul is uh, a prisoner for Christ, and he's bowing his knees, and he's about to pray for you, And God says, no, they need one more go at this. One more chance to get this in your minds. I was saying to our congregation at the prayer meeting on Thursday that it's the disaster that half-term has occurred this Sunday. This is the most important bit in Ephesians. So if you're listening online, well done. Now, the mystery of the gospel revealed. The word mystery occurs, I think it's uh, four times in the passage, verse 3, 4, 6, 9. Mystery means this. It has a precise biblical meaning. It means something that 
could not or would never be known had God not revealed it to us. So what we're reading here in the gospel is not Paul's idea. It's not Paul's mind that has come up with this. Now, I have lots of books in my study with titles like Paul's Theology or Paul's Gospel. Now, uh, we can understand what is meant by that, but fundamentally that's wrong. It's God's theology. It's God's gospel. It's what God has revealed to Paul and the other apostles. So look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. The end of verse 4. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. And verse 9. The mystery hidden for ages in God. That is, the mystery was hidden in God before he chose to reveal it. Now, why is Paul at pains to stress that all that he is saying comes by revelation from God? Well, for a number of reasons. For one thing, to humble himself and to exalt God in Christ. In all of his ministry, Paul is at pains to point people from him to Jesus. And we'll come back to that later. But the main reason I think that Paul wants to make it clear, and he makes his point three times, that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to him by God, is to give his readers then and now absolute confidence in the truth of the gospel. Now, if we were to recite one of the creeds, we would say something like, we are part of the one true Catholic, which means universal and apostolic church. So we are an apostolic church, both our churches. That means we stand on the revelation that has come to us from the apostles. But in some ways, though, we're, we're, we're more than an apostolic church. We're a church that stands on divine revelation, the revelation that has come to God, to the apostles, and then to us. And that gives us total confidence in the truth of the gospel, because it comes straight from God. Now, that's obvious to us, isn't it? We know that. And this is one of the bits where Paul needs it to affect us or to engage our hearts. Because assurance is a matter not only of the mind, but of the heart, of the soul. The gospel you and I believe, the gospel that embraces you, comes from God himself. Now, that, that's a huge shot of assurance. And, of course, the other side of that coin is a warning not to tamper with it or change it. So, what is the mystery of the gospel, verse 6? The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And then verses 9 and 10, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is the plan? So that through the church, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The mystery of the gospel revealed is that salvation in Christ is for everyone who believes, for both Jew and Gentile. 
Now, again, the significance of that must not be lost on us. The original readers of this letter to whom Paul wrote were Gentiles. And through the history of the Old Testament, there were Jews. And there was everybody else, Gentiles, outside of the covenant promise, excluded. The very word Christ, if you were a Gentile, you would assume it had nothing to do with you because Christ is a Jewish word. It means Messiah. But no more. In Christ, God has created a new humanity, a new people of God, a new covenant community for everyone who believes in Jesus. And these Gentiles, these first Gentile converts, the first readers of this letter, were coming to terms with this revelation that all of the blessings of God in Christ were theirs, that every spiritual blessing was for every single believer, whether Jew or Gentile or Greek or Roman or black, or white, or rich, or poor, business class, cabin class, working class, upper class, whatever social caste. Now, we struggle to understand this. Just move in your minds to, to India. Imagine coming to terms with this when you have grown up in a culture where everything is divided into castes. Any group or division in our culture, all who believe are one in Christ Jesus. And when that truth was revealed to Paul, his heart burned within him as he grasped the implications of this, that the gospel in Christ really is for every nation on the earth. And when he conveyed that truth to these first Gentile converts, their hearts burned within them. And what about us when we were included? Most, if not all of us here this morning, well, I guess we're Gentiles. Just look back to chapter 4, chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, before we read this, I'm just thinking, I wonder if and this is the, the, the conundrum of the preacher on Ephesians 3 or any part of Ephesians. Are we really grasping this? Are we affected by it? You know, the fact that in the gospel, God has made one new humanity. Think of our world. It's just so diverse and so divided. Think of America at the moment, divided with the fault line down its middle. There is no division in Christ. It's just so alien to our world. What about us, chapter 2, verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So before Paul had this revealed to him, there was no concept nor any possibility that anything like Holyrood Evangelical Church or Chalmers Church could ever exist, for we're Gentiles. And Paul says to us, never forget who you were. You were dead, 
under wrath. And never forget who you are alive in Christ with eternal hope. And never forget how it happened by grace. And never doubt the immense power of God that got you from death to life. One of the things we battle against all the time is trying to work against a kind of prevailing culture that becoming a Christian is kind of a lifestyle decision. It's not. Becoming a Christian is the operation in the soul and mind and heart of a human being that is the same order of power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And being a Christian is to have one foot in glory. You see what Paul means when he prays that our hearts will burn within us when we realize that we are saved and safe and seated with Christ and sealed by the Spirit. Now, I said a couple of minutes ago that the fact that the gospel has been revealed means we can have confidence in its truth. And likewise, I think the fact that the gospel is by grace means we have absolute assurance now of our standing before God. Elsewhere, Paul writes, and you know these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. You see that what was revealed to Paul back then in the early church is being worked out 2,000 years later in this room. All of us were dead. We'd be made alive if we're Christians through the power that raised Jesus from the dead. We're all very different. We're very much more different than we think. And yet God has reconciled us to one another in the gospel. Now, here's the most important thing. There is something else about the mystery of the gospel that is revealed. Read with me verses 9 and 10 again. And if you've fallen asleep, wake up. The mystery of the gospel is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay? Keep that in your minds. Through the church, and that means local churches all over the world, through the church, through the 25 living churches in Edinburgh this morning, see, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Keep that in your mind, and then turn back to chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of His will, same word, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, uh, what that is saying is that God's wisdom God's will is most or made evident in the fullness of time when all things will be united in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
Now, in both of these references, chapter 1, 9, and 10, and chapter 3, 9, and 10, references made to God's plan. I love it how Paul has the same verses, yet he doesn't have any verses, I suppose, in the original. But it helps us that it's chapter 1, 9, and 10, and 3, 9, and 10. Does that mean there are two plans? No. It means there is one plan in two phases. You still with me? Yeah. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 describes God's plan in the fullness of time. And it's striking how he puts the fullness of time bit before the now bit, just to assure us that the fullness of time bit is the bit that makes the now bit guaranteed. It's striking how he does it. The fullness of time bit, 1, 9 and 10, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. And what is that ultimate fulfillment? When, when Christ returns and the new creation dawns, and the new creation is the place where all things will be united perfectly in Christ. A redeemed and a resurrected humanity living in a redeemed and a resurrected creation for eternity. That's the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. That is where history is headed, where sin and its effects will be absent. Now, that's uh, described in lots of ways in the New Testament. Let me read you one of the most famous, Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That is exactly the same as Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where God's redeemed people will live and reign forever with God's Son in a perfectly harmonized, united creation under Christ. And who'll be there? Believers from every nation, every people, every language on the earth, whether Jew or Gentile, Greek or Roman, black or white, rich or poor, business class, cabin class, working class, upper class, whatever caste, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian. Every other and any other group or division you can name. They will all be in the new creation. All one in Christ Jesus. And that is where you and I will be. Now, how does that affect you? Is it merely a truth that invades our minds from time to time? And of course, we know what is outside the new creation, that perfect world. Everlasting hell for all unbelievers, the devil and his angels. Now, that is the plan for the fullness of time. When the world will be made new and all will be united under the lordship of Christ, where all humanity will be one and reconciled. See where this is going? That's the end. What's the now bit of the plan? Go back to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that through the church, local churches scattered all over the globe this morning, the, the 100,000 local churches in the world, there's more than that, but just imagine that, all these churches that began about 10 hours ago in Sydney, and right around the globe will meet this morning, scattered all over the world, through them and all the faithful church through history, the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what that is saying is the church, and you don't feel it or believe it, but it's true, Holyrood Evangelical Church and Chalmers Church are the prototype on earth now of what the new creation will be like then. You're going, oh no, it's not. Oh yes, it is. So, think of who we are as local churches, Holyrood or Chalmers. Who are we? What are we? We are a bunch of people reconciled to God and to one another, united in Christ, one in Christ Jesus. With all our faults and failings, it is through local churches scattered throughout the world that God's wisdom is seen. Our two churches have a closer connection to each other than any other groups in the world. Yet, our churches, like every other local church in the world that is living as a gospel church, has a closer connection to the new creation than to the world. If you want to see what the new creation is like, you should get a glimpse of it in the church. Now, in many churches, you don't. And in many occasions in our churches, you don't. Why do churches not reveal the new creation to the world because they don't have Christians in them or they don't have Christian gospel or they don't believe in the Word of God. But that shouldn't excuse us from seeing and relishing and rejoicing in the fact that God's mandate for the church and the world is that it will display the manifold wisdom of God. Now, that phrase in verse 10 is key, the manifold wisdom of God. It means literally the multicolored or multifaceted wisdom of God. And the point is that a local church has very different people in it, united in Christ. Now, our churches don't have that diversity that they should. And the reason is we choose churches so, which church are you going to go to in town? I'm going to go to a church which I think looks like it as people like me. So, we choose churches for human reasons, not gospel or eternity reasons. But that's, that said, our communities, Holyrood and Chalmers, are far more diverse than we think. Were we not united in Christ, we'd be tearing each other's hair out. We might not all like each other even. But we're united in Christ. So if you go to a football match, opposing teams' fans are segregated. There is no segregation in a church. People who are different in all sorts of ways, united in Christ, God's new humanity, a prototype of eternity. Now, we do well to remember what an astonishing thing a church is and what an astonishing privilege it is to be part of a living church. We do melt to remember who we are. We don't remember that enough. We should value one another, love one another, smile, weep with one another more than we do. For God has reconciled us not only to himself but to one another, brought together as an expression of God's new humanity. We have more in common with eternity than this world. And that should, Paul says, make your hearts burn within you. When you get your head around who we are. Now, the existence of the church, 
local churches in this city of Edinburgh displays, Paul says, the wisdom of God to the world and is a powerful statement to the unassailable progress of God's plan. That's what's meant in verse 10 by the church making known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, so we're sitting here this morning, yeah, on Sunday morning at uh, 16 minutes to 11. That reminds me that I've got to speed up. Yep. And, and we are revealing, as we sit here, the wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God, which means that we're all very different, but we're all united. So we're revealing the multifaceted wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Right now, who are they? Chapter 6. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now you see what Paul is saying. The rulers and authorities are evil powers, the devil and his angels, and the existence of the church on the earth. The fact that we are meeting this morning at quarter to eleven as two local living churches, we are shouting out, as it were, to all that is evil in the cosmic realms, that God's plan is unstoppable. We are shouting out to all that is evil in the universe, Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or we can rephrase that, I will build my church and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms will never prevail against it. It means the same thing. And uh, so the continued existence of Holyrood Evangelical Church and Chalmers Church is a sign to these evil forces that they are defeated. They fight hard and they'll fight on until Jesus comes again, but their defeat is guaranteed. And just think what has happened since Paul wrote Ephesians. The gospel has gone to the nations of the earth and there are local churches all over the world Proportionately, there are more Christians in the world today than there have ever been. And every single living church that has met this morning across the globe and will meet this afternoon cries out in defiance against all that is evil in the universe, I will build my church. Now, people often ask the question today, does the future have a church? Well, you can see why they're asking that. The answer is that the future is the church, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The new creation is the church in all its fullness. So, of course, the future has a church because the future is the church. And that certain future guarantees the existence of the church on earth now. And the existence of the church on the earth now and its growth throughout the world is witness to the fact and witness against all that is evil and tries to oppose the church. Now, humanly speaking, yeah, there are all sorts of reasons to think that Hollywood Evangelical Church or Chalmers Church might fold, yeah, or have folded in the last two years. But if the church is alive to the gospel, if the church is committed to the word of God, I think you can extrapolate from these verses that it is impossible for that to happen. So we get all worried every Sunday in Chalmers about who's going to drive the van and where everything is and who knows and all that. And, but you know, the reality is that that the power behind us, the power behind the living church in the world is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And we're never going to die unless we abandon the gospel. And Paul wants that to burn within us. God wants our churches not simply to survive, but to thrive and to show the devil who is boss. Now, I'm going to miss a bit out here. Uh, the mystery of the gospel revealed, and, and that's the hardest bit to understand, that the plan that is to be fulfilled and the bit that's now the church, it's all grounded in Christ. Now, Paul says that six times. It's all in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ alone. Yeah, let's leave that. Let's move to number two, the message of the gospel proclaimed. Now, for the first time in the letter, Paul speaks about his own ministry. He mentions it first in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and then more fully in verses 7 to 9, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery." Paul's ministry, his commission, was to preach the gospel to the world. He had a unique apostolic ministry, but his ministry is the model for the church in the world. His ministry is the model for every local church. His ministry is the model for every minister, every preacher, every Christian. Because we do not tell a different gospel from Paul, it's the same. And what he began will carry on until the Lord Jesus returns. Now, on Thursday, uh, in this room, uh, in our prayer meeting in Chalmers, we had Maura Irvin, uh, who is in Bolivia. She was here for a week, and Jen and Richard, who are soon to be returning to Mali. And I said at the meeting that the Apostle Paul would love to have been there on Thursday night to hear that the commission that God had revealed to him had got as far as Mali, which the Apostle Paul didn't even know existed. And if Paul had been there on Thursday night, I would love to have presented him with a copy of the New Testament in Bamoko, the language of Mali. How would Paul have reacted to that? How would he have reacted? He, well, he would have said, yes, in my mind, I understand that this great revelation has been fulfilled. Yes, but surely his heart would have burned within him. Does our heart burn when we think of the gospel going to every nation of the earth? Or do we get a little bit irked? when the best of our people decide to go to the other side of the world. Now, Paul describes his ministry here, and again, let me just touch on these. He says three things about his ministry. He says, first, he was thrilled to do it. He just loved being a gospel minister. He got to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I was with somebody this week walking uh, at night with the dog, and, and uh, he and I were comparing jobs, and and he didn't love his job, and, and in all genuineness, I, I do, because of what I get to do. And Paul, secondly, was called and gifted for it. He makes that very clear, verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And Paul really lays it on thick. It was all given to me by God. I didn't have any of that. His conversion, his call, his gifts, the power that attends his ministry, all from God, all by grace. And what is true of every, of Paul is true of every minister of the gospel. Every Christian who exercises any form of ministry 
And that's true of all of us, isn't it? Whatever ministry you do, had God not brought you from death to life, you would not have known the gospel to speak it. Had God not given you the gift to teach it or speak it, you couldn't do it. Had God not given you a commission or opportunity, then no one would hear it. And most importantly, the power to speak with conviction and authority, the boldness to speak at all is from God. And that is true of every Christian who exercises any any ministry. And as soon as we forget it, we fall. So that's Paul's ministry. He loved it. He knew it was all from God. And thirdly, he was utterly inadequate for his task. For to me, although I'm the very least of the apostles, this grace was given. And the great apostle, his past dogged him all his life. Yep. And every one of us, our past, shouldn't dog us in the sense of being unforgiven, but should remind us that this dead man is preaching this morning. He was dead had God not made him alive. You cannot share your faith with anyone had God not made you alive. You're weak. Paul's humility is an evidence of the unstoppable power of the gospel. I think Paul's description of the Christian ministry here is so real. And if you're a minister, you'll understand this. But you understand this as a Christian, for we are all in ministry. Paul's threefold description of the gospel. He loved it. He was compelled under conviction to do it. But every single day, he felt, I can't do it. He loved it. Nothing would stop him doing it, but he couldn't do it. That's the dynamic of gospel ministry. The message of the gospel proclaimed to the world. And uh, I guess the application of this is, are we engaging in global, national, local mission? Are we thrilled to participate in God's plan to tell the gospel, to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ? You know, the New Testament rarely motivates us to evangelize based on obligation or duty or guilt, never guilt. The New Testament motivates us to evangelize on the basis of an understanding of God's unstoppable plan and the thrill of being involved in sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ with someone who hasn't heard it. Churches will never engage in evangelism if we do not engage in the way the New Testament motivates us to engage in evangelism. Finally, suffering and glory. Our passage begins and ends with Paul's suffering. He's a prisoner. At the end, I am suffering for you. Suffering and proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ go hand in hand. Why? Think of it like this. If we are a living church this morning, if we are a gospel church, then we are displaying to all that is evil in the world the unstoppable progress of God's plan. What do you think all that is evil in the world is thinking about this church this morning as they look in? They're listening to this preacher and they're going to say, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to disrupt you. I'm going to make you not get this in your head. I'm going to make five of you fall asleep during a sermon. I don't want you to see this. And he will have fought tooth and nail to bring down these two churches. But he will not win. He cannot win unless we abandon the gospel. And of course, in the suffering of the church... And it will always be thus in the suffering of Christians. For faithfulness always means friction. If the power of God is at work, the power of evil is availed against it.
But even in the suffering of the church, the hostile powers are confounded because suffering in the end accelerates the advance of the church. The most the, the, the way the church or the gospel of God mocks the devil most is that when the church is most persecuted, the church most advances. I am suffering, Paul says, which is your glory. Why is he suffering? Because he is proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Is it worth it? I wish he were here, as I said on Thursday night, to hear about Mali. Of course it's worth it. Just let me finish with this. Maura was telling us on Thursday uh, that 25% of the population of Bolivia are evangelical Christians. <laughs> and they face many challenges. I was thinking, well, that's a good challenge to face. They have thousands and thousands of ministers who haven't been taught. 25% of the population, imagine that, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Their biggest prayer point for us is, please, God, could they meet some people who aren't Christians? Because they can't. Isn't that interesting? They have a mountain to climb in Bolivia that's about as high as Arthur's seat. Now, we have a mountain to climb in Scotland to rebuild the church. How big is our mountain? Let's say if the major denominational structures do die, then the mountain we have to climb is maybe plant a thousand churches in the next 50 years. That's about the height of Ben Nevis. That mountain, back here in 60 AD in Ephesus, at the start of it all, the mountain they had to climb was about the size of Mount Everest. And look where we are now. So I ask you, verse 13, Paul says, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Never lose heart. Never lose heart. Never lose heart. And you see, all over the world, and also in our little corner here, these words are the right end to this marvelous theology of the church. Never, ever, ever lose heart. And where does Paul end? Not with the mind, but with the heart. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these marvelous, marvelous truths in Ephesians of who we are as churches. Keep us faithful to the gospel. Keep us faithful to the Word of God. And may we never, ever, ever lose heart. And we thank you, Lord, that the power that is at work within the living church in the world is astonishingly powerful. And nothing will put out the light of the true and living church, however strong and fierce the opposition is. Thank you for this great vision. And help us to remember when we see the mountain we have to climb, that the Apostle Paul back then, when this was revealed to him, surely would have felt this is simply impossible for the church to go to the ends of the earth. We pray all this with that request that we will be deeply affected by these truths. For Jesus' sake. Amen.